Matthew chapter 11, that's on page number 921 in the Red Pew Bible, and that's uh, available for you to follow along. I encourage you to do so. Uh, we want to be a people of the book, and we want to know the book, and we want to be able to find our way in the book. So I want to encourage you to uh, look into the scriptures this morning, Matthew 11, 20 through 24, and this is a second in a series of portraits about Jesus. Uh, last Sunday, we, we saw the first portrait of Jesus as the promised Messiah, and now uh, the shift, there's shifting of, sh of, of colors and images, and there's a little bit of a, a, a necessary response to the darkness in the world, and we see Jesus is the coming judge. And as we look at this text this morning, uh, we might be startled uh, by some of the things that Jesus says. And so I want to uh, uh, have that clear in our minds before we get started. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethesda! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Whoa. Take it easy, Jesus. What are you doing? You're supposed to be the friend of sinners. Wine. Dance. Come on. Chill. I recently read that one of the greatest virtues of Gen Z is not to be phased by anything that prior generations would have considered to be either perverse or deviant. I did read that. I actually don't remember where I read it. I read a, quite a bit of things, but it, it stuck out to me as remarkable because I was in a coffee shop in Hawley uh, a few weeks after I had read that, and I overheard a conversation nearby me um, and the conversation at that time was more interesting than the book I was trying to read. And uh, it was two women who were talking, and uh, one lady was Gen X, at least it appeared to be Gen X, looked about my age. And then there was, across the table from her, was a girl that appeared to be in the millennial generation. And they were talking about a prominent girl in Honsdale who is Gen Z. And uh, according to the conversation, uh, you know, Gen Z, according to this Gen X girl, was so accepting of people, no matter what their presenting identity or gender was, it was like nothing even really phased her. Now, Gen X said that she was impressed by this girl's poise and ability to let nothing phase her. And so I was like, 
I just saw what I read. And in the process of that conversation, uh, the millennial nodded her head in agreement with the, the Gen X girl, and uh, Gen X reflected on her own upbringing and said, you know, that she had been raised so much differently. And then she wisely said, well, you know, the old ways are not always the best ways. And I sat there listening to this conversation, and I actually was wondering, what would they do if they were to sit across the table from Jesus? Would they be able to keep their poise and, and, and let nothing then phase them? Jesus says some pretty, pretty difficult things at times in his ministry, shocking things, and uh, I thought to myself, would Jesus make them crack, you know, that poise? Now, Matthew changes canvases. He paints for us a new portrait of Jesus. Jesus, yes, he was the promised Messiah, but he is also the coming judge. Ironically, this is the portrait that John the Baptist was looking for. John the Baptist thought that when Jesus came or the Messiah came that he would bring fire and judgment. But ironically, this was not the case. Now, I have to ask, Jesus changes tones here. Is this a moment of schizophrenia for Jesus? No, I don't think so. I think rather what's more to case is that John himself was confused as to what he was looking for at this moment. John thought that he was, he was the Elijah. He thought he was the one who was going to be the advance man for the Jesus who would come with fire and brimstone. But instead, they crucified this Jesus. And in reality, the Elijah that is yet to come will be for another day. Another day. Since Jesus has come, today is the day of salvation, but tomorrow, just before the coming of the Lord, Elijah will announce the great and awesome day of the Lord during the days of the great tribulation. Now, here in this text, Jesus is the coming judge we see before whom all will rise. This is something that is definite on the horizon, and I, before I go any further, I need to stress that this portrait of Jesus as a judge is not for the brokenhearted. It's not for the contrite. It's not for the afflicted. Jesus as a coming judge is for the smug. It's for the complacent, for the comfortable. What the brokenhearted need is grace. They need the grace which will be in the next portrait of Jesus. When we come to this text next week, we will see Jesus as the compassionate Savior. And in each of these portraits, there's a unique feature and function to communicate who Jesus is. Thankfully, Matthew includes both judge and Savior views of Jesus. So in verse 20, I want us to see how that Jesus, by his communication, Matthew narrating verse 20, 
communicates to us that Jesus is worthy of our warmest reception. He is a judge before, before whom we will rise. Now, let's read verse 20. What does it say? Verse 20 says, And then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now, notice the phrase, he began, in verse 20. It indicates a changing of focus. Uh, he's now addressing this generation whom he talked to in the last text, verse 16. Uh, he says in verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. This generation doesn't like anything that's presented to them. And in this sense, Jesus is though someone who they ought to, to receive because Jesus is more than a more than prophet like John. He's the incarnate son of God. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he is the one who will hold court. And when he enters the room, all will arise. A few years ago, when we were living in Canada, Abby went through the process of acquiring Canadian citizenship. And on a set day, we gathered with probably 80 to 100 other immigrants coming into uh, a courtroom where we would be received by the authority of the Canadian government. And uh, as soon as the judge walked into the room, I wasn't prepared for it. There was just like a vacuum rush of everyone standing at once, and you just kind of got caught up in the, in the standing when the judge came into the room. And uh, that's actually what's going to happen. When Christ returns, everyone will rise. They will be resurrected. John 5, 27 to 29 says this, And he has given him, that is the Father has given Jesus the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, the gospel writer John does not go into great detail. He will later in Revelation 20 when he talks about the sequences of resurrections and when these occur. But nevertheless, they will occur. And when the judge comes into the room, all will rise. He's the one who's coming. And he is worthy of our warmest reception. Now, what might a warm reception of Jesus require? What would you think he would be looking for as an expression of our hearts towards him? Well, John, or Matthew in Matthew chapter 20, talks about the kind of reception that Jesus was looking for even when he was present on earth doing ministry. He was looking for repentance. People turning away from their own selves 
and directing their heart exclusively towards him and the message that he was bringing from the Father. Now, he is the judge before whom we should repent. He is worthy of our reception, and we ought to receive him with all of our hearts. Now, Jesus denounced several cities because um, they were, they were kind of honored. They were honored with Jesus' mighty deeds. His, his greatest miracles occurred in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and these occurred in such remarkable display, yet they refused to honor Jesus with an undivided heart of love and respect. See, Jesus had been teaching, he'd been preaching the themes that arise out of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had been preaching to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and not to have a divided heart loyalty between God and money and mammon. In short, Jesus was calling them to task because they were lukewarm. They were not, they were divided within their hearts. Now, I mustered here this morning 18th century Baptist pastor in London, John Gill, who, who commenting on that phrase, lukewarm, from Revelation, that we might be aware of, he said this, a lukewarm professor is one that serves God and money, that halts between two opinions, that knows not what religion is best and cares little for any yet keeps it in a round of duty of attendance. He's not committed himself to any particular, he just kind of attends. And though indifferent to it and contents himself with it and is unconcerned about the life and power of godliness and takes up with the external form of it instead. There's not a concern about what the heart is doing, it's more concerned that the perception of others around them is way it should be. Now, an external form of godliness that goes through the motions of religiosity is a very dangerous place to be. Don't get me wrong. I, it's really important, though, to maintain the rituals of a weekly participation in public worship. It's valuable from the standpoint of, like, it keeps you on the road. There's like the guardrails that kind of keep you within, or those, like the bowling alley, the gump, bumper guards that they pop up, kind of keep you in the middle. But the problem is, is that you can, you could, you could have a head-on collision if you fall asleep at the wheel. There is a comfort in coming to the body regularly that is, yes, helpful, but it can put you into a spiritual lethargy if you do not take seriously the life and the pursuit of godliness for the love of God. And it's so important, I'm using this metaphor of keeping in the guardrails, it's important though that we have periodic rest stops, like that we get off the road so that we don't fall asleep or we catch ourselves nodding at the wheel and we get off the road and I would say that repentance is a lot like one of those rest stops. It's a pullover 
It's a pullover for, for self-reflection and a moment to correct oneself to say, wake up. Stop sleeping at the wheel. I need my heart wholly fixed upon Christ in front of me. And so in the process, you confess sin, and it's like being at the rest stop, you take trash out of your car and stick it in the trash bin, right? Repentance occurs when our hearts become more sensitive to sin than they had been previous miles. And in that fact, there might be even a tendency to be incredibly sensitive to one's sin that others might say, oh, you're being too sensitive. No. Repentance is having the exposure of the heart laid open, and you see clearly what's going on inside of you. It's pulling over, it's confessing, it's removing, and it's putting in the bin, so to speak, and leaving it behind. And so as I think about what it means to be a lukewarm professor, it's being unconcerned about the life that you're living and denying, if you will, the power of godliness through the Holy Spirit to do a work of transformation from the inside. And I ask a couple of questions. These aren't exhaustive. This is not an exhaustive questionnaire, but you could ask yourself some questions like this. Does your heart ever prompt you to tears when you have managed your life in such a way that you have less time to read the Bible? You have less time to pray. You have less time to prioritize time with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel grief? When you hear your own voice using God's name in a way that's in vain. Do you brush things like that aside and say, it's what everybody does. Do you ever feel grief when by surprise you're scrolling on your screen and an inappropriate picture presents itself and you linger? Does your heart ever fill with grief when those things occur? If they're not filling with grief when those things occur, you're lukewarm. And this generation that Jesus is speaking to saw the mighty works and they ought to have known better but they had hardened their heart and Jesus shocks the listeners with denunciations. Again, I want to repeat myself very clearly. If you are brokenhearted over sin, genuinely brokenhearted, and you have a conscience that flays you, what you need is not this piece, which will be next Sunday. This is, this is again, is for the complacent, for those who are comfortable Jesus is to describe later in the book of Matthew what respectable religious people are. Is that in reality, they are like a hard walking trail that when the seed falls on them, it bounces off. They have a hard heart. It just bounces off like a rubber ball on the ground. 
In other words, the truth, it doesn't penetrate. It doesn't, doesn't go, the arrows bounce off. It doesn't matter how dynamic the preaching is. It doesn't matter how high quality the children's ministry is. It doesn't matter how many Bibles you have in your house. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you attend. It's like Jesus doesn't move you anymore. It's because hearts have become hard. Now, it's really important for us to recognize that Jesus is worthy of our our, he's worthy of our heart's reception. And to get this while we still live and breathe. Verse 21 to 24, I spent a lot of time in verse 20, but the next pieces actually kind of show how Jesus will how he judges based upon our reception of him. You know, we can sing songs like, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. I love his mercy and his grace. But the real test of our love will be our reception and our willingness to follow him with all of our hearts. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so hard-heartedness towards Jesus is actually, Jesus says it's worse than ignorance. It actually would be better if you had no prior experience with Jesus when he comes. Now he brings up these cities, these contrastive cities. He talks about Tyre and Sidon. Let's look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. The Tyre and Sidon were northern coastal cities on the edge of Israel's border on the northwest. And as far as we know, Jesus never, never traveled to those cities. Shockingly, Jesus warns the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, which he had visited and says that their cool reception is going to be judged harder, harder due to their increased opportunity and exposure to Jesus. Now, if Tyre and Sidon had been given the same opportunity, Jesus is saying they would have received Jesus and they would have repented long ago. They would have put on the traditional sackcloth and ashes one of the purposes that sackcloth and ashes provides is a distraction for the soul. Uh, it's also an expression of discomfort because you may be agitated in your soul, but donning something on your body that's like, also itchy and, and discomforting kind of focuses your, your attention on that. Now, as soon as I would say sackcloth and ashes, some of us might remember Nineveh, right? They were very ready to put on the sackcloth and ashes, but Jonah wasn't. Jonah was proud. He refused to warn Nineveh. 
Why? Because he knew that they would repent. He ran away. But God spit him up on shore out of a whale. And Jonah, Jonah was so hard-hearted. You know, people who are adrift but don't know it could actually be closer to Christ than people who have it all together. I think it's important for us just to take a moment to realize what Jesus is saying. We ought to be opening our eyes to the world around us. We ought to be loving this generation in spite of their depravity and the excesses by which they express themselves, there are a lot of people who are in distress. There are a lot of people who, by their own presentation, want you to know that they are distressed, but they don't want you to say something about it. They want you to love them and then show them Christ. You know, Tyre and Sidon, they were large pagan cities, a lot comparable, maybe, if we want to put it in our context, maybe they're like the Beijing, they're the Delhi, Tokyo. It could be very possible that places like that are in a more favorable place compared to our American, Canadian, and British cities who have seen the mighty works of God through awakening and revival. Through the last 200 years, waves of awakening have blessed our continents in such a remarkable way. But if our nation moves away with hard-heartedness, away from God, we ought to take the warnings of Jesus very seriously. It might have been better if we had been ignorant because it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for us. Now, there's hard-heartedness that is worse, Jesus says, than ignorance, but there's also a hard-heartedness that's worse than perversion. And this is intended to be shocking. Verse 22 to 24, we pick up the last segment here, he says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. For you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, Capernaum's case was especially grim even more so than Chorazin and Bethsaida. Because this was Jesus' home mission base. In his adult life, he had left Nazareth and had located near the Sea of Galilee, and he did his most dynamic uh, miracles in this location. And Jesus says, you know, this is the city that, because they had opportunity to have me, are maybe potentially prideful, and they're lifting themselves up to heaven, but they're going to find that they are actually cast into hell. Now, Jesus is doing something unique. He's paraphrasing from Isaiah, Isaiah 14, 
verse 13 to 15. I'll just, in short, bring you to the key points in those verses. This is Isaiah speaking. He says, You said in your heart, O Lucifer, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. But you are brought down to hell to the far reaches of the pit. And Jesus is adapting familiar Isaiah language and saying, look, you think you're all that because you had me and you got the privileged place of all these miracles. Don't let that go to your heads. Humble your heart and repent so that you're not cast into hell. Jesus says, you know, if the works of God had been done in Sodom, they would have repented, and they would still be in existence today. That's pretty strong. They refused to accept Jesus' teaching, and instead, Capernaum is destined or headed directly to, to hell unless they repent and turn. Now, I, I can't but stop and realize what Jesus is saying here. If that's true of Sodom, our culture that has embraced the LGBTQ in all of its perversity actually may be potentially riper for salvation than those who have had truth from their baby bottles. You know, the scriptures can be known from our childhood, and they can make us wise unto salvation. But I know many also have had a wonderful upbringing, but also have the hardest of hearts. Ironically, I know of many who in their young adult life were great sexual sinners, but they have turned to Christ not having had the same opportunity. Never growing up in church. It's reflective of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul said this, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, not the idolaters, nor adulter adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Like, if that's going to be your habit, yes, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. But now you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah for the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. What a precious tribute to see him raise up that which might otherwise be said, there's no hope for you. No, there's great hope for those who have never even claimed or have the experience of rising up in a godly home. I mentioned a few weeks ago a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfeld who taught at Syracuse University in the English department. At the time I was sharing that, I may have given the impression that she was still a lesbian, but that's not the case. She, is, she was, but she is now redeemed. She is now a born-again believer and has forsaken that lifestyle. Today, she's very bold for the truth. In fact, she serves in her local church alongside her husband, who is a pastor. And what a beautiful testament 
to God's saving grace. Now, America is truly very perverse, or maybe we're hearing a lot more about that today. But we also need to be careful when we hear messages like this as well, not to make final judgments about the perverse around us. We actually ought to be cautious about making any final judgments about people. Because there are some who are Christians who are actually going to be far worse off than people who have been ignorant and perverse. It's because you've allowed yourself to grow lukewarm. Some may even be deceived, thinking that they have fire in their hearth, but there's no flame at all. Being unconcerned about one's spiritual state and the power of godliness that comes to us through the Holy Spirit, and just being satisfied with just keeping up the externals, Jesus said, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare unto you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, Jesus is the coming judge before whom all will rise. Now, I reflected a little bit more on that coffee shop conversation that I had when I was eavesdropping. And those two women were discussing a changing world, and, 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 and the, the girl who was my age was implying that either she was struggling to keep up, or, or she was prideful to think that she was keeping up. And she said that the morality that she had been handed down by her parents and the common sense, male and female, were unnecessary weights to carry anymore. And what she was doing was demonstrating a hard-heartedness to the truth and also to the God who made her. A lot like the generation in Jesus' day, she had been handed down a repository of good teaching from her parents. I don't know if they're believers, but they gave her the basics of what's actually true about male and female. But what happens is we can get a hard-heartedness where we think that we know what's best, that we can actually navigate life on our own. And that kind of pride is like quickener in cement. It goes faster. See, God opposes the proud Thankfully, he gives grace to the humble. And I know I, I brought a lot of attention to this portrait of Jesus in some ways to kind of shock us as Jesus intended to shock his listeners. I'm trying to be faithful to the portrait that Matthew presents. But I also know that the portrait changes again in the next paragraph. And what the brokenhearted need is grace. And that's what comes next Sunday. I invite you to return to hear how Jesus is the compassionate Savior. Let's pray.